Hello! Welcome to Fishing Friday at six o'clock, like a strange alternative crackerjack in European time sort of thing. Um, I have my uh, bottle of Erdinger alcohol-free beer again. It's chilled. Uh, and I decided um, this Friday, because it was such a lovely night, that I'd do it in the garden. So my shades are kind of automatic uh, cool. So um, you can't see my eyes. So, uh, but I'm here. Uh, vape full, questions there, beer here, live feed on, computer there. I can kind of see the screen and everything, so it's good. So, Gordon Fletcher, hello from Nottingham. Sue Clark, hello. Harris is green, Gerant. Lewis James, hello from Sunny Anglesey. Thomas Serenza, hello from Copenhagen. Joseph Rodriguez, New Jersey, USA. Tina Renee, Andy Werrell, Yolanda de Boivester. Oh, no Cracker Jack pencil though, yes, you're quite right. So, it's been a kind of strange week. I've been trying to get a lot done in the garden and um, positives are I've got the, the, the ride-on tractor that I've got, my wee kind of Tonka Toy tractor. I've got the blades sorted on that, so I was going to do the grass this afternoon, but I got caught up, I had to go down down the, the town to get to Boots, pick up prescriptions for my ma and blah, blah, blah. And the time you do that and do Tesco's and you get the shemag on, which has been not my good tour shemags. Now I can wear them and it's like, you can wander about looking really, really dodgy in Harrington High Street. Uh, no Grendel mask though, not yet. But I, I was thinking actually of doing a, a shoot down the road with um Oh yeah, thanks darling. And put something on my head, because it's sunny, with a lovely fish thing, which also can double as a mask, which is quite nice. I should have done them actually, but it's, uh, you know, the fish masks. Um, but we're getting used to it. We've been, the mail order, as you may, you may know, we've, we've shut it down for a week, because um, we were kind of, it was all moving in and we ran into some techie bits and pieces and some finicky bits and questions that Simona had that, that we had to get answered. So we decided rather than try and operate the whole mail order thing and try and put the new one in and test it and do everything else, we decided to just shut it down. So I'm hoping it's going to be up on Friday next week and it'll be all singing, all dancing. It's quite impressive. I mean, uh, I'm, it's, it's a big lump of tech. You know, and you know what I'm like with tech. <laughs> but, um, so. Let's launch into them. Okay. We one here. Pedro Almeida, hi from Portugal. Why did you never release a song with Mike Oldfield? Your credit on one of his albums. Yes, I am. I used to live in uh, Gerard's Cross, which is in Buckinghamshire. Uh, I lived there in kind of, I think I moved there in about 80, it was 86, late 86. And um, Mike lived just up the road and I think it was, it was Charlton St Giles or Charlton St Peter at the time. And um, Mickey Simmons was playing keyboards for him. And Mike had come along and we did a gig for Pete Townsend's Double O Charity. And that was kind of where I got introduced to Mike and, and Mickey was there, blah, blah, blah. And we ended up becoming squash players together. And we, we played squash uh, at least once a week. And there was Mike and his kind of, his, um, his valet, 
or his mind, he's not his minder, but he's his uh, kind of look after her chappy. Uh, it was called Jeremy. And Mickey and I, Mickey and I used to play together against, against Mike and Jeremy most of the time. And it was, uh, we actually got to know each other pretty well. Nice guy, strange, but very nice guy. Uh, very intense man. And, uh, but he was, uh, he was putting together an album at the time and he was trying to break America. And he got me in to, to, to sing in a song and, and, and I went up to his studio and we started working on it together. And I can't remember what it was called, but it was really hard. I'd never really worked with anybody else. I'd, I'd, I think by that point I'd done the Tony Banks work, which was, and working with Tony was kind of definitely like working with, you know, the high school teacher. He was very methodical about the way he went through it. But Mike was in a, another level entirely. And it was like, you'll know, do this and do this harmony and this harmony and this harmony and do this and blah, blah, blah. And he was meticulous in the way that he went about it. And it started to not be fun. It was, uh, it became a, it was, it was getting a real test. And I was, I just felt that it wasn't the way that I recorded in a studio. And we worked it and we got a, a, a pretty good song. I think it was called Another Country or something like that. And I've still got a cassette in one of those boxes in the attic. There is a cassette. Far Country, that was what it was called. And um, it moved on and he liked what had happened, etc., etc. And it moved into the album. And what, what actually occurred was that the American record company wanted singers that were either known in America or had American-friendly voices. And my voice was seemingly deemed as being not American-friendly and uh, my song, which or my performance, which was complete, absolutely complete and mixed and everything, was taken off, and they brought in another singer who was another singer who was more in tune with what the American label wanted, and I was ditched, which is why I got a credit on the album. Uh, and Mike was a complete gentleman about it, and uh, he apologised profusely, and he did phone me up and say, "Look," and he explained what was happening. And I accepted it, and um, it was it, it was a bit of kicking the teeth at the time, but you know, it happens. It's, it's interesting because I've been reading the the, the Phil Collins uh, autobiography. Uh, I'm not dead yet, which is kind of it's a really interesting book. It's uh, I like it. It's very honest. I mean, I've met Phil quite a few times over over the years, and I've always found him a really open and honest chap. He's one of them guys. He's one of the the few musicians that I know. Um, of standing that kind of you could feel quite comfortable and, and and go out for a beer with and and have a laugh with and he's 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 always he's always been really friendly. I had a very strange experience in 1996 I think it was when he had uh, an album out on on Warner's uh, Dancing to the Light or something and um, I was sent across by Radio Fourth to interview him right? and I'd never interviewed anybody before right and. Um, and I'm used to being the interviewee, right? I'm used to people asking me questions. And it was, I was really prepping myself, I was really psyched up, up and, and Warners flew me across to Geneva to his house. And um, I went into the, the place and I was in this queue with all these other radio guys. And all the radio guys I kind of knew and they were kind of going, why are you here? <laughs> you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, uh, 
I'm saying I'm here to interview Phil. And uh, so eventually my time came up and all I had was a 20 minute slot. It was just the record company that deemed that it was only, you're only allowed 20 minutes. So I went into this room and there's Phil and I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. And it was like, oh, for sure you're doing blah, blah, blah. And the two of us are going, yep, 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 yep. Talking about all sorts of stuff like that had nothing at all to do with the album. And I said, Phil, I said, I'm really sorry, but I said, you know, I have to do this interview, right? And I said, I've only got like 10 minutes. And I had to sit down and, and do this kind of interview and, and be all kind of proper and do the, the red, representative Radio Forth and things. And then it was like the end of my 20 minute slot and then I was out and then he had another five interviews to do. But it was a very strange experience. But the book is, is, is phenomenal and uh, it's, it's really good and it's very open. And I was kind of... I was thinking about that because he actually mentions in the book about one an early session that he did where he played congas on uh, a George Harrison track, and uh, when the album came out, there was no mention of him, and he couldn't, he didn't know what had happened to it, and he got really upset about it. And uh, but it's just, it, was, it made me think about the, the Michael section, which is why I thought that was a good question because it, it it tagged into this Phil Collins stuff. But it was, uh, but it's a great book. It's. Uh, I'm actually really enjoying it. I'm about two thirds of the way through. The Live Aid, the, the Live Aid uh, story in itself is worth buying it for the read. It's really good. And it's, when I, when I read the book, it's just, I can <laughs> totally imagine I'm doing this. Right. There's another one. As I said, I'm in the garden, right? So it's like the hi-fi is in there. So um, at some point during the second half of, of you know, my um, soliloquy towards you, I'm going to have to take everything inside to play the track and I'll finish off the interview then. But at that time, the sun will have gone down a bit. But um, what I can do is uh, at this point, I'll just give you, a, I'll, I'll pick up the camera and I'll just give you a quick whip round. So this is, this is the, the, the Funny Farm kitchen garden. I'm in the, the, the front of the studio at the moment. Um, that's that big wall I got put up in the last uh, nine months and I built an entire fernery and with geraniums and primulas and things and all the tulips and everything I planted in the, I planted last autumn and it's been spectacular. And, um, and this is the, that's the cabin. When my mum moved in, we didn't have any spare rooms. And as we were moving into the, the, the winter, Steve Vances was actually staying in a, a tent in the, in, the, in the back garden down in the orchard. And it, it sounds a big estate, it's not, it's not. It's just the right size for Simone and I to deal with the garden. But when it got to the winter, we had to get the cabin and when my mum moving in, I lost the spare room. So we got this beautiful thing. It's from a, um, a company called Palmaco, who we are in Estonia. And uh, they put it up and it's, we kind of use it for if we've got guests staying over, like the kids are here or whatever, <laughs> when the kids ever get the back, come back here again. It's got, it's got a, um, it's got what I call a shugle machine, which is supposed to reduce your baseline and you stand in it and it shugles you. And it similarly tenses and untenses your muscles or something, right? And there's um, a cross trainer. And the only person that's been using the cross trainer has been my wife, who's kind of, trying to get me out to use a cross trainer and I will go, but that's the Palmaco cabin. In the front of the cabin, there's all the onion beds and stuff. And uh, the big barrels are actually um, 
they used to be um, they used to be Jack Daniels barrels, seemingly, and um, I kind of I bought ten of them, and I reckon that out of the ten barrels I bought, that's probably the amount of Jack Daniels that I actually drunk in the eighties. So I kind of look at it as being a sort of like um, it's a kind of Jack Daniels graveyard, and you know, and I, I find it quite it's there's a there's a nice circle to it, the fact that I'm growing carrots in the barrels now and growing onions and stuff. So. And salad beds and the plants at the front, they're all blueberries and things. And um, this is the area, this is the pergola area. So uh, I've got to watch because I've got to watch in case I'll lose signal because the signal's in the house. So. And this is kind of, that's the tatties that I was talking about in the funny farm kitchen garden. And you can see all the, um, the bluebells all coming through at the moment in the rose stuff. And that's the, the, the greenhouse where I've got all the tomatoes and nothing else. I learned a lesson from Mr. McCartney in the Mull of Kintyre and having Amazon dropping off packages, the last thing I want is some Amazon driver that turns around and goes, oh, by the way, I just dropped off some stuff for fish and there's a load of interesting plants in the greenhouse. We're not doing that, mate. So, and my American visa is more important. Am I in camera? Yes. Jean-Francois Gautier, beautiful garden party, you thank you. Looks like a Mark Wilkinson cover, Jack Morris. David Rue, love your outside chimney. Oh yeah, the wee chimney. I've got a wee thing for, so when it, when it get the, the temperature goes down, we've got a wee smoky fire to light up. But we can't invite anybody around, so we've got a beautiful place. And and this, this we had, it's a, a great place for a party, a whole garden it's kind of set up so people can spread around, but... <laughs> <laughs> Not just now. Sorry, Manchester, Chris Bob Harper, Anne Miller, Guildford University, Daniela Rigby, What Light Mad, Gitche Noir. I get the name wrong. Right. Here was a really interesting question, right? And there was actually there was two there was two bits to it, right? One was from Louis uh, Louis Louise Moody. Most talented drummer you've had the pleasure to work with, right? And from Joe Makovsky, uh, she's been a keen observer over the past few weeks and have found them to be really, really intriguing. Da -da -da. Um, as a drummer myself, I can appreciate elements of the many that have occupied the kit across your solo years. Kevin Wilkinson certainly up there as a favourite. What did he bring to the band and what are your favourite qualities in a drummer? Um, he takes a sip of beer before he launches into this chasm of... <sighs> Here we go. Drummers. I wanted to be a drummer. You know, I think when I was, when I was kind of like 17, 18, it was kind of, I had this idea that I wanted to be a drummer. And the closest I got to a drum kit was I bought a pair of drumsticks that I used to put in the back my back pocket, so I looked really cool. And it was kind of like, so if anybody asked, asked me about this, oh yeah, well, I'd like to drum. I used to drum on bits and pieces of things, but I mean, I was rubbish, right? And um, I think it has something to do with, it was, uh, I think it was the, the Double Deckers, I think it was a TV programme, and there was a drummer on that, and he used to wear his sticks in his back pocket. And I used to think that was so cool, right? But singing was for me but I mean I always had this kind of thing about being a drummer and 
some of you may remember that back on the stage in, uh, with Marillion, I used to have a set of congas. I can't remember, I think it was 1984 or something, or, or, or around about Assassin time, 1983. And, uh, and I wanted to be kind of part, I didn't want to just be a singer. I wanted to like, you know, be part of the music. And I think it was something to do in between the kind of long sections. And I used to use it on Assassin a lot. But I've always had this thing with rhythm. Right, and a lot of my lyrics, um, there's I mean, stuff like Punch and Judy, uh, they've got um, this like strong rhythm. I mean, the, the lyrics of Punch and Judy was written well before the song. I mean, it was always going to be a bow diddly beat. Washing machine, pinstripe dream, strip the glass from a beauty queen, Punch and Judy, bam, 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 bam. I always heard it like that before Jonathan Moover ever got involved in it and we started writing that. So that's how the lyric was written. And I do have a certain, uh, I use a lot of rhythms and, and syllables. And it's one of the things where, when I was writing with Marillion, that, um, you know, when they, they could come up with kind of weird music rhythms, and I could always kind of find a way around, the, around those rhythms to, to place lyrics and get syllables in, and use syllables like, like little beats within it, you know, and I, I still do that. Although I try and balance it off, I mean, in latter years, it's like, using a balance between that kind of syncopated kind of jazz kind of vocalization and, you know, and then also like doing the smooth runs over. So you run over the rhythm and hold it all together. But drumming was always a big thing with me. And, uh, you know, I remember when I went to the, the, the UK premiere uh, Spinal Tap, right? And I remember Jeff Beck was actually sitting in front of me. And when the whole guitar thing was about, you know, you could see him visibly sliding down the chair. <laughs> like that. Oh, God, that's me. And when the drumming thing came up, it was like, oh, Jesus. Because we went through, we had Mick Pointer, um, and my opinions on Mick Pointer's drumming have been well spoken about over the years. And, uh, and when Andy Ward came in the band, you know, I, I really liked Andy and I thought Andy had a lot of promise and it was just a shame, it was a real shame how things developed and what happened with Andy, the fact that like on that first American tour, um, when Andy was basically fired in New York uh, shortly after that gig down at the pier with Rundgren, it was, um, it, it was a real shame. I mean, not only did we lose a big chunk of American touring, I mean, because we, we were only halfway through the tour at that point, and we were heading down to places that I've always wanted to go, and I've still not been yet. Like, I've never been to Texas. I've been to New Orleans with the Sass band stuff. But anyway, I digress. When Andy left, you know, we, we went into this whole drumming routine. John Martyr came in. He did the drumming for us at, uh, at Radio City for the Rush shows and things, and signed his own kind of, um, he signed his own death warrant. <laughs> Because he turned around on a, a, a junky night in a hotel suite and said something along the lines of to the rest of the guys that we're out fish. It's like, you know, the band would be blah, blah, blah. And uh, it kind of, I think, raised the hackles of some people. I liked him as a drummer and I brought him back in to drum with me later on. And, uh, and I kind of lost count, I mean, you know, of all the drummers that I played with. Um, in my solo outfit, I had Ted McKenna, who was a beautiful person and a great live drummer, but he was just one of those drummers that in the studio, it, it didn't really work with, with Ted. 
and uh, John Keeble for Spandau Ballet, he played with me, you know. But I mean, I've always been, I've always looked on the, 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 the drumming as being a, a hugely important factor in, in my band. And it's a really difficult position because, because my music kind of um, moves through a lot of different genres. You know, you've got heavy rock, you've got folky parts, you've got jazzy parts, you've got all sorts of different dynamics within it. And it's difficult to find a drummer that can nail all of that. Um, um, the few and far between. Um, Mark Brzezinski was a, a great drummer when he, he was, he could be very, very busy live, but I mean, a brilliant drummer. Craig Blundell, who did the Veltschmerz the, the material, brilliant drummer. One of the, the, the best drummers in the studio I've, I've ever, I've ever worked with. Um, and, um, and Kevin, And Kevin was a, Kevin Wilkinson was a really beautiful drummer, and um, he was he was a great person to be around. He, we had some fantastic. I've got some great stories about Kevin, and um, Kevin and I getting mashed up in various places in the world. And, uh, but Kevin did the I think it was the, the the Suits album, and I was really hoping that he was going to be coming out on the tour. And as always, it was like, I like to get the guys that are in the, the, the album to move on, or I used to do that. And, I, um, and Kevin did the Suits album, and I wanted them on the tour. And I was driving him uh, to the airport to go back for Christmas after we'd done the album or done his part of the album. And um, he, uh, he announced that he was going, and he, the Proclaimers had offered him like, a, a, a whole load of gigs, like a, a huge lump of gigs. And he had for various reasons he had to take on a gig that was going to be paying a lot of money and um, and he elected to leave and I was I was upset about it and you know having been through you know a, a whole tour with him you know previously the old songs for the mirror tour and um, and he left and he was a, a great great drummer he was so flexible and he had a, an incredible feel he could be busy when he had to be busy. He could lay back and kind of disappear and hold everything. And um, he, he was one of the, the, the best drummers that I ever worked with through on a live and uh, on a live scenario and, and a studio scenario. And I was absolutely busted when I got the sad news that Kevin had, had killed himself. It was really incredibly sad. And you know, listening back to the, the Suits remaster. When I was listening to Suits remaster, and I was in touch with James Cassidy, who produced it, and we were talking about it. You know, we were, you know, listening to the remaster and hearing Kevin really sparkle and shine was just, you know, it, it, you know, we lost a great guy there. But um, but Gavin Griffiths, you know, he's my my live drummer, and you know, and Gavin is is very similar to Kevin, you know, in, in quite a lot of ways, and that he's, he adapts. He can, um, he adapts really well. He's got the power when he has to lend the power. He's got all the subtleties and he learns so quickly. And he's just got a great feel. He, he really feels the music. And I think that's important for a drummer to feel the music. I mean, I've had some, I've had some drummers that, you know, they were like playing in another band. You know, they were just going, they were, you know, again, read the whole biography. I've had some nightmare drummers and they don't last very long because 
their feelings stand out very, very quickly. Ian Mosley was a, a brilliant drummer. I loved working with Ian. Ian, had, uh, Ian was another man, man who had, uh, has got fantastic feel. And, you know, I'd, I've tried, I tried in the past a couple of times when I was, when I'd lost somebody and I needed a stand in, it was like, you know, is there a possibility that Ian could just stand in on the quiet for a, a, a while? Oh God, I'm bleeding. Scratching myself, bollocks. Anyway, but I mean, Ian was great. Ian's brilliant. Um, you know, but this is, but the, the drum thing, because they're the, the backbone, you know, and I've got a great bass player in Steve Vances, and, you know, having that rhythm section to pin everything down and feel everything, you know. Like I said, it, it, this is not an easy gig. There's a, I've been approached by a lot of drummers, and, you know, I just know that it ain't going to work. And as I said, I mean, I've had people that have come in that have kind of, um, that have thought that they, they could crack it, and they found it a lot more difficult than they thought. So, but Kevin, yeah, rest in peace. He was a, he was one of the top guys. He's definitely in, in in my top five drummers. But I mean, as I said, you know, that drumming stool is is incredibly important in, in my outfit uh, because of the feels, because of the different um, styles that are all required across the board. I shall go and look at the laptop now in the sun. Uh, Enrique Bangor, Bigoria, hi, Michael Mosher. Why am I doing those Radio City shows with Rush? That's another, that's another thing. Right. Uh, Daniel Signore, Mosley's a great drummer. Yes, yes, yes. Did, oh, did they ever play with John Milet? Oh, John Milet. John Milet was a great drummer when he was the, the Rage drummer. Rage used to support us a lot. And uh, Milo, because, I mean, John Milet became, uh, he was written in for eternity within the misplaced children album and um uh milo was great i think milo stood in a couple of times were were marillion um but i mean he was a, he was a really good drummer and a great guy but I mean, he wasn't he was yeah sadly missed milo he was a, i loved him as a person and a, a very interesting guy and he was a great drummer and, you know, Rage, well, I used to love working with Rage. We used to have a lot of laughs with Rage, but again, that's another story, isn't it? <laughs> Can't you take them all at once, you know? Uh, Dave McElroy, hello, uh, James, what is the tap fish? The tap. I got my tattoos. It's like, I've got a, up here, I've got a scar, right? And it was from, a vaccination mark, right? And uh, when I was a kid, I was I was given a vaccination for I think it was polio, and it was a really young nurse, and she was supposed to the scratches were supposed to go down, right? And she scratched across, and because I'm I, I tend to scar pretty easily, and what happened was that this scar grew, and um, and I can always hate it. It was I was. Uh, you know, people used to ask it. Oh, it was a helicopter blade. Oh, it's a knife. You know, blah blah. It was a knife fight I was in. You know, and it was a vaccination mark. And I wanted to get rid of it on the 1995 Yin and Yang tour. I got that uh, done in Hamburg. And I woke up one day and I went, I'm going to get something on it. And I got that little crappy Yin and Yang tattoo put on the top of it. It's not very good. It's very blurry. This one was done. Uh, this is kind of an Egyptian-based design that was done by a guy called Bim who was a, um, a, a tattoo guy, uh, where was he, out the west coast. And um, 
he did that one and it was actually that's the one that you see actually getting put on the on the brother 52 video that is actually the two it was done live on the video and i'd had a bit to drink the night before which anybody who's had a tattoo knows it's like it's not a good idea because you bleed kind of like that um this one here that was done that was done basically about two days after the one in hamburg was done and that was done in hanover in a tattoo shop that was right opposite the capital in Hanover, where the gig we're playing, that was done sort of like just before soundcheck. And that's kind of I've been, I've always, I've thought about getting other ones done, but I've just never really got round to it or found the design that I really want to put on my body. And I'm, I'm okay with these ones. You know, this is a bit thin. It's a very thin line, and it's uh, faded over the years. But the one, the guy that I really wanted to put a tattoo on me was uh, um, Doc. Um, who was uh, the guy who speaks on uh, um, the beginning of the Brother 52 single. And he was the guy that uh, tattooed um, Brother 52 himself. And when we went out on that, that tour in America on, um, uh, on the Sunsets and Empire tour, Doc uh, uh, came out with us. And we were talking about doing this tattoo and he really wanted to put a tattoo more and Yatta hogged him. And Yatta had them, and the two of them used to get off their faces every night. And Doc used to leave these massive books of tattoo designs for us to look at, going, yeah, man, I'm gonna do you. All you guys, you know, we're gonna start you with tattoos. And Yatta, the tattoo hog, right, had them and decided he was getting this amazingly intricate tattoo. And he got it every night. They'd be in a hotel room, in some holiday inn room or whatever, and Doc would be driving in his little, uh, uh, um, what you call it, his little camper van after the big bus and he'd arrive in, in the hotel and come in the hotel and then he'd be doing it, drinking vodka and getting off the faces, doing the tattoo. And it wasn't actually finished until the very last night in LA and I never got a tattoo of Doc and I was gutted that and that never happened. And, um, and Doc sadly died a couple of years later and, um, and Yatta still has this tattoo and every time I see it, I kind of like go, I grind my teeth. Anyway, so, Matt Davey, hi from lockdown in Portugal. Hello, Barry Wales, Sky Jordan Wood, Trevor Byford, hello. Uh, John Timmon, nice garden, thank you very much. It's a lot of work, believe me. Uh, Laurent Lemaire, big hello from Paris. Erwin Van Eert, hi from the Netherlands. Which is from Northern California, Robert Marotta. Does it ever bother you, Linda Dublin, that fans and others will talk about your excellent work with Marillion and seem to ignore your equally excellent solo work? Eh, hams. The interesting thing is, since I've started doing these Fish on Fridays, there's so many people going, oh, I thought he was dead. <laughs> is he still working? Uh, and uh, there's a lot of people being rediscovering, and we can tell because of the, the, the remasters that we're selling. Um, and and I've had a lot of comments, which, you know, it's good that people kind of are still finding it. And, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have a stick up my ass about it. I don't get particularly upset about it. You know, I mean, Kaylee is what Kaylee is, Lavender was what Lavender was, blah, blah, blah. And it's, um, you know, and it's great that those songs are still out there and, you know, and Kaylee still pays for a, a, a decent chunk of my, my earnings every year. So, uh, you know, so I've got no problems with that. But the Marillion thing, you know, it's so long ago, you know, I mean, um, it's, uh, it's a long time ago now. And uh, 
I think that's why I get, you know, when people talk about reunions, they go, why? You know, no. So, let's not go there. It's boring, right? Scott Reagan, greets from San Diego. They're international again, this, this sweet game. So, right. Marco P. Campanini, Italian. What cars have you had that you really liked? Um, cars. Swing of the Erdinger. It was, um, my dad had a garage and it was called Dick Brothers, which was the name of my very first ever kind of um, independent uh, record label that opened up in 1994 uh, for the Suits album. And because my dad had a garage, you know, I really developed a kind of version for cars. When all my friends were talking about Weber carburetors and buying uh, such and such spot lamps and, you know, every, I hated them because I was around cars. I mean, every time, every tea time, my dad talked about cars, you know, a lot of time. When we used to go on holiday, he used to, you know, he started an auto shop. He was one of the first people ever in, in, in Scotland to start an auto shop, which was kind of, it, uh, it was a shop where people could buy things like aerosol paint to paint the cars and brake pads and all the kind of stuff that people could do for DIY. And, and they sold it so people could work at weekends. And it was a, it was a very innovative, innovative idea. But, you know, very much similar to myself. He was like, he was an independent and he got kind of crushed by the corporate side. And when Halfords and things came out and they were buying in bulk, et cetera, et cetera, he was like, they couldn't do them for, my dad couldn't really compete to some degree and peril, but that's another long story. But my dad, when we used to go on holidays, like we'd go out and my dad, we'd find ourselves walking down a street and gravitating towards a garage. And my dad did particular note of the prices of what people were charging. And I, I hated it. You know, I, I, I just, I was, I worked in the garage and I was around cars and I was driving cars when I was like 10 year old because we had a, a big bit of, there was a big bit of wasteland that my, my, my family owned, my dad owned, called Granny's Park. And all the old shitty cars that hadn't passed their MOTs and wrecks and things were put down there. And every now and again, there'd be a car that maybe hadn't passed its MOT that was falling apart. And my dad would detune it, right? He'd tune the accelerator down so we couldn't drive really fast. And we'd just drive around in circles, but that was boring. So my, I remember my cousin, Billy, who was a lot older than us, when he came up, he used to tune the accelerators back, the, 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 the carburetors up again. And we used to go belting around in circles and smashing up these cars like it was kind of drag racing and stuff, or like banger racing. And, uh, but my first car that I ever had was a Mini 850, which uh, I think my dad bought me as a contraceptive device. <laughs> I'm six foot five and I had this green and white Mini 850 and it had, it was called Eric. Right, and it had Eric written on the side in, in white letter, and that Jimmy Lennox, the panel beater, did for me. And it was, it was, I loved that car. And I, but I was so tall in it, I had to get special seat brackets that basically, it pushed me all the way back into, to, basically to the back seat. So it, it was really only a three-seater. And it was like, and there was no way you could have any kind of sexual shenanigans in the back of an 850. <laughs> it was a, a car after that, a day 50, then I had a 1300 Escort, then I had a 1600 Cortina, and the, most of them were, were cars that my, my dad, my dad was great to me with cars. It was like, 
I think the Cortina was the first one I actually put money towards, but because my dad had, they were basically old cars that were kind of done up that kind of I got. And the first car that I got on my own, which uh, I, I bought and it was delivered to the backstage at Milton Keynes was a Wolf GTI. And I loved that car. And there's a, loads of stories attached to that. But that car came up here. Then there was a Volkswagen Caravelle that I had in uh, kind of 1993 period. Um, and that was what we used for when we went out on, on the tour, when we did the, the, the Toile tour. And it was a great, the, the, my first Caravelle was a, a great vehicle for the band and the equipment and stuff carrying around. I got another Caravelle later on, which was pretty iffy. And then there was, uh, I've had a, a Volvo that fell apart. I had a short wheelbase Land Rover that I got as a kind of, um, as a, a stall car in between, trying to make my mind up what was going to which was a joke car. It was seriously a clown car. You used to drive, or I used to drive from here down the bypass to go to the airport if I was picking people up. So he's like, you'd be driving along, and it was like, and then the doors would just open. And when you're driving along along the joke carry, the doors would just chee a clown car, and it was, it was just it was a joke, right? And I remember picking up a girlfriend that I had at the time, and we was driving along, and she, the sound of her screaming as the door opened, as we were doing maximum 50 mile an hour along the dual carriageway with the, the gearbox, wee, And uh, it was fun, it was a clown car. After that, I got the, I had a, a, a Jeep for a while that I got, I managed to talk my way into getting a deal for a Jeep Cherokee, and uh, which was a great vehicle, but it was, it was big, it was, it was sleek and it was a bit flashy and um uh and i thought i had a really good deal with it until one morning i got up and they'd taken enough a lot of money out of my bank account to pay for this jeep because like the deal was over and i, I was like mm. and at the time i did not have the money to put into it for a jeep and a volvo after that again and uh, an 870 and then i had uh i had a, a v70 volvo which i liked and then I had my car, which is my favourite. Currently, I drive a Skoda, and I got a, uh, I've got a Skoda Estate, it's a Skoda Superb Estate, and I think I made a mistake buying it. You know that the film Independence Day when uh, when Will Smith finds the, finds the spaceship in the desert, and he goes in and he's trying to work out what to do with it. That was kind of how I felt like when I picked up the Skoda at the West End Garage, right? And I was like, what is all this stuff? There's so much tech in it. And you know that I don't like tech. And I, I, it just becomes, it, it's overwhelming. There's, there's so much stuff, so many gadgets that I don't even use, I don't want to use. And at the end of the day, it's a 1500 petrol engine. And I've, I used to get better mileage out of my two litre uh, Volvo. And that was my favorite car. The XC70 Volvo, and it was diesel, which I wanted to get rid of, and it, it, I'd had it for 14 years, and I was sad to see that go. It's, it's my wife Simona's favourite car as well. But I mean, the, the X, Volvo XC70 was definitely my favourite. It, it touched all the points. It was great to drive, and I kind of wish that I'd maybe splashed out a little bit more and gone down the Volvo route rather than the Skoda route. Because I mean, it, like I said, there's so much tech, and it just, I've had issues with it, but you know, it's, it's fair enough. It's a good drive. I mean, for the money, it's, it's okay. But like I said, the Volvo XC70 is definitely my favorite, so.
John Watson, Kaylee is your equivalent to Noddy Holder's Merry Christmas, everybody. I don't think so. <laughs> I think Noddy's got a few houses off Merry Christmas. Oh, the sun's zipping down behind the roof. Gordon Clark, hi, mate. Paisley. I can't see. Oh, I'll take a question. Oh, by the way, that book, This Party's Over, that I mentioned before I played the track, This Party's Over, last week, uh, John Tymon, uh, the, the author of This Party's Over, is Richard Heinberg, and it's called Party's Over. And if you're looking for a book that's a little bit different, it's about the kind of like the world we live in, it's definitely worth the read. Richard Heinberg's Party's Over. Uh, uh, Karina Ruckwald. Strange question. I always wondered, what did you mean in this next quote from White Russian, uh, as the Uzi weapon wasn't invented yet in the Holocaust days? They're burning down the synagogues, Uzi's on a street corner, the heralds of the Holocaust, Uzi's on a street corner. Number one, Chris Kimsey, right, when we actually did that album, he actually thought it was floozies on a street corner. And it wasn't until he read the lyrics on the album that he realised it was oozies. Um, the reason... Oh, flipping it the shade. The reason um, it was oozies was when I got the inspiration to, to write that track, it was... Uh, Kurt Valtime was uh, running for President of Austria. So this was way back in, what was it? That would be... 1986, I think it was, and we were down playing in Austria. And I met a guy who was a, uh, an American, and I think he was an American Jewish guy, and he was a DJ on one of the, the, the big stations. And they'd been told not to mention Kurt Waldheim's allegedly dodgy past. I say allegedly, it was like, um, he was supposedly had links to uh, Nazis, etc. And he took me on a walk around Vienna and he took me up into the Jewish quarter. And it was coming up to elections and, and all the synagogues were boarded up because uh, a lot of the, the kind of, the, 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 right, the ultra-right wing guys were basically throwing bricks through synagogue windows and stuff. And there was extra security about it. And what I noticed was that uh, there was a lot of the uniforms down there, a lot of the, the police. And there were, it was like Uzis. Right, or what I thought were Uzis. And I just thought it was kind of ironic that, you know, they were, you know, you had uh, Austrian police. I mean, maybe I am wrong, right? But at the time, it was like, it was uh, Austrian police carrying, you know, an Israeli designed machine gun protecting synagogues in, 2000, in 1986. I thought that was kind of weird. So that was the link. It was like the link to that is the fact that it was you know, the Holocaust and the Uzi, and the Uzi being representative of kind of modern Israeli armaments and what was happening in 1986, in which that White Russian song, which was a song which was about, it was kind of, uh, what's the word for it? It was um, uh, a bird in the mine, like a canary in the mine of, in, in Europe about the rise of right wing, and lo and behold, we're sitting here in 2020, and we're looking at the rise of uh, some very ugly types of nationalism across the world. Uh, so that was the story behind it. Hello, Masima Murgia. Uh, oh, by the way, 
people have been asking, you know, where can we get the, where can we see this? So like once we, this is obviously live and where we can, uh, where you can watch it. If you go down the timeline, you'll find it. Or if you go onto the videos, if you go on that Facebook page, you look at the videos, you'll find all the, the, the previous Fish and Fridays. And on top of that, Rob Scarron, uh, who's my wee genius and uh, who deals with all the website stuff and a, a, a lot of my kind of social media side. Uh, Rob's set up podcasts. And if you go on the Facebook page, you'll find links on to Spotify and you'll find Fish on Friday on, on Spotify, which is obviously with the podcast, it's just the audio. But the, the videos you can find on Facebook, on the, the timeline, if you scroll down or if you just go straight into the videos and you'll find them all there. Marco Pikarainen, Volvo 850, best Volvo, never drove one. Oh, Bruno Del Tom, a round of applause for Squeaky Stewart, Dave Stewart. How can I forget Dave Stewart? Sorry, Squeaky. Squeaky was, I mean, like I said, I've got lists of drummers. It was, a, it was one of the questions at one of the fan club conventions. And it was like, and, and I, I don't think I could even, it was asked. And it wasn't asked to me because I don't think I could have got it right because there's been so many. You know, it is, you know, the worries. Dave Stewart, great. Hi, Dave, I think you're watching. So, Squeaky, you're a man, you're a man. Uh, did have a VA celebration Arrington today. I wasn't, I didn't see anything. I saw the stuff on the news. It's, uh, it's, um, yeah, this is strange. I don't know, the, the, the VE day thing, I've got some kind of thoughts on that that maybe it's better not to talk about. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's strange having kind of, uh, having VE day in, in, VE day in the middle of this kind of COVID thing. It's, uh, and people always, and talking about the war and talking about the war against the virus and like Trump declaring himself a wartime president and stuff. I find it, uh, I don't like the way the lines get blurred. I really don't like the way the lines have been blurred. Um, you know, it's, I, I find I find it difficult when when you know people are you know already pointing fingers, blamey fingers at people, and, and especially at China and stuff. And it's like this isn't the time to be doing that. You know, this is a time when nations should be coming together to to sort this out. You know, this is you know the virus is not something that, that belongs to any particular nation. You know, it belongs to Mother Nature. And, um, you know, it, that's something we, we've, we've got to deal with. I don't like this perpetual blame game, this national blame game. I mean, regarding countries and, and all the rest of it, you know, we should be joining forces. We should be sharing stuff. And, um, and from what I've read, you know, from, you know, my perspective as, you know, news junkie, it's like, I can remember back in January, you know, seeing warnings coming out from the uh, World Health Organization in China and stuff. So I find it a bit strange that, you know, I know why it's getting done, especially in America, why, you know, there is, you know, a blame finger getting put. And, you know, you know, the COVID-19 should not be political. It should not be, nobody should be making or trying to make any kind of, uh, trying to get a political leg over where, um, with COVID-19, it's not right. It's um, you know, this is this is a thing for humanity, it's for society, it's the world. 
you know, this is way beyond party politics, way beyond party politics. Things have been done wrong, etc., etc. We'll address that later. But for now, we should be concentrating on trying to get our way through the situation we're in, not doing pointy finger, right? And you know, I watch CNN at night, and I, I find it. Uh, I sometimes find it quite disturbing, you know, some of the utterances that that, that come out, and um, it's. Uh, I have my own opinions. This place on this feed's not the right one because it's only a one-way conversation and I don't want to spout at you. So we'll go back to safer territory. Alan Swain from Cardiff, hello. Gary Lundis, how's Doris? Doris is doing well. I talked to her a couple of weeks back. Hello, Doris. And uh, her vocals on, on the album have been great. She's done a fantastic job and I love working with Doris. And she's a lovely wee person. My wife and I think she's fantastic. And, you know, we often play her albums. If you get Doris's last album, by the way, if you want to support an artist, buy Doris's uh, last album, go on her website and, and have a wee deco. It's, it's well worth it. It's good. And she's working on an acoustic album at the moment. Michael Adelsmeer, hello, Michael. Uh... What's that? Sorry, I'm just a bit, uh, trying to get this, this thing in the sun. Ah, this is better. Ah, oh, Michael Ablesmere, give me a break, mate. You know, let's. I just said let's not go there, right? Uh, oh, the Mandela gig. Another drummer that I worked with was at Phil Collins, and it was like you know, Phil Collins and Mark Brzezinski behind me. That was and Mick Carn standing on bass mid-year on the guitar and you turn around and you got Phil Collins and Mark Rajetsky. Now that was a drum section. That was a drum section. Uh, uh, John Kelly, here man, nursing home manager here saying thank you for getting me through this. Well done, mate. No problem. Andy Fox, hello. Keith Johnson, what brand make is your favourite chainsaw? <laughs> My favourite chainsaw is the Husqvarna. I used to have a Yonserid when I was in the, the, the Forestry Commission uh, on that, and, uh, but when I left, I've got a Husqvarna and I still have a Husqvarna. It's, it's not the big one, it's not a dinky one, it's a kind of medium one, and, uh, and I've still got it in my garage. And I still know how to use it and I still know how to sharpen it. And, um, and uh, yeah, chainsaw. And I've still got a scar on my left leg. Peter Green, hello. Uh, yes, I have a scar on my left leg from a kickback on a saw in Spearmouth Forest, way back in Blue Blue Blueville. Right. Uh, bandwagon. You ever going to play it live again? Only heard at Harrington Convention, uh, Terence Quinlan. <coughs> when I heard Bandwagon on the Suits Remaster, the thing with the Suits Remaster was that when we actually when we spiced up and remastered it and just, just d d dinked about with the EQs, it really sprung out. And, uh, and I was surprised, that, you know, how much, you know, that, that new remaster did to the album. And Bandwagon really stood out. It's a gravy song. Um, I don't know where to play it again. I mean, this, this, it's you know, that's maybe one of the things you know when I eventually somewhere along the line get to play in the farewell tour, 
You know, as I said, I mean, I, I said last week, I mean, everything has just gone pfft, up in the air. You know, I mean, October, November, I'm still hoping it's going to happen. People are saying it is, people are saying it's not. But I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, if, if it does shift into 2021, then that is not, I don't plan on that being my farewell tour. I want that to be something special. Excuse me. So, you know, I'm now staring in the eyes at, at 2023 if, if, if this all carries on. If God's it's ever happen again, you know, I might just be a gardener for the rest of my life, might I be. Uh, so, yeah, so maybe by my, I mean, I love the idea. I can't remember which band it was. I think it was Elvis Costello. Went out on a tour and he had a big spinning wheel and he had all the songs in it and spun it and then he just he played it and things. On the Fish Heads Club tour, uh, that was great because it was just Foz and uh, Frank Usher and I. And, you know, we used to change the set list. By the time we got into the first couple of months, we had such a library of songs that we were able to just do requests and just drop anything and play. And it wasn't like when you do a set list when you're with a full electric band and you've got to kind of... Uh, you know, stick to the script. And, you know, it's very difficult to bring songs in and out, you know, once you've got programs and blah, blah, blah. And once the band's settled in, it's very hard to shift things in and out. But on the Fishheads Club tour, I really liked the idea, like, you know, hey, Just Good Friends, One Night, State of Mind, Bit of Rain Gods, you know, something from, uh, you know, Jigsaw, from Fugazi, and then Somebody Special. And that, I, I liked doing that. It was, it was nice to do that. But easy with a three-piece. And when you've got a lot of talking in between the, the tracks, it's very easy. But, you know, on the big electric band, it's a lot more difficult. Another Queen question, another ignoring of the Queen question at the moment. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you heard. <laughs> Brian May, and I'm really sorry to hear him. And Brian, Brian, if you're listening, as if he is, yeah. He said, I'm really sorry to hear about Brian, but seemingly he told his Glutus Maximus, which is basically... Um, the, the the nice Latin term for your arse. And he basically told them to the massive muscles in his arse, gardening, right? What was he doing in a garden to tear his arse? Sorry, to tear the muscles in his arse, I should say. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, it's uh, you know, I've never, I've never ever felt anything, you know, nasty occur within the mus muscular region of, of my ass during gardening. So, Brian, what, what are you doing? It's like, you know, he was in, he was, I'm really sort of sad to hear, he was actually in hospital. And it's like, I'm just going, it's stunt gardening. This is Liam. Yeah, I'm bald. <laughs> this is Liam. Yeah. <laughs> Liam, because Liam, I'm wearing this because of the sun. Oh, the sun's gone, I can take it off now. Thanks, mate. Off. You're not going to embarrass me. They've seen my bald head before, mate, you know. Go through the kitchen and cook the curry. Right? <laughs> Teenagers. What? Yeah. He was on about it. He's got a problem with his, his PlayStation, right? So he was wanting to shut all the routers down and change all the routers like five, ten minutes before we went live online. So... <laughs> yes. Yeah. Tech disaster on its way. Don't think so. Uh, how do I choose the album titles? Who was that? That's an interesting one. No, oh, missed it. Have uh, Signe, oh, Signe ZR, have you ever thought of collaborating with other artists on an album like Jean-Michel Jarre did a few years back? Nah, not really. It's, uh, you know, there's a couple of singers, you know, that 
you know, it'd be interesting to do some stuff with, and, you know, but I mean, really, no, I'm okay. I've got my guys that I work with, I love my guys. They're great players and stuff, and um, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. Uh, Keith Pike, do you keep in contact with Ian Anderson? I don't keep in contact, uh, but I mean, uh, we do have each other's phone numbers, and uh, and when we meet up, it's always fun. It's uh, I, I like his company. He's a very intelligent, beautifully eccentric man, and uh, and in there lies a wee thing. Now this takes takes it into this thing. I think I mentioned this before, but I mean, the one thing I learned from Keith Goodwin, my first press agent, is like he says, be aware that everybody you screw on the way up will remember you on the way down. And that's something I always remembered. And uh, and Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull are a classic example of uh, that learning. Our first festival was Marillion, and I've still got the poster through there from uh, 1982 when we played the um, Wakefield, the, 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 the Nostal, Nostal Priory, I'll go on a minute, Nostal Priory gig. It was... Um, you know, we were like real low in the bill, Jethro Tull were the headliners. And then the next thing, Jethro Tull were working with us at Milton Keynes. And then when I went solo, I was supporting them. And, and it's been like that, you know, all the way through. And there's, there's times when Ian, and I was at his son James's wedding. James is lovely guy, lovely guy. I was at his wedding down at Ian's house. And, um, you know, and James will phone me up and Ian will tell James, you know, we've got a gig, you know, maybe Fish might be interested in it. And that's the way it works. And we've always heard... There's always been a mutual respect between us and, you know, we're long-term artists, you know. The ego thing doesn't come into it. I mean, you know, I've worked I've worked with some people on, on bills that, you know, I didn't enjoy working with because there was always that sense that they were trying to be, like, put one up on us and you don't need that, you know. And it was... Uh, um, but Ian's lovely bloke and he's, he's great company. He's really good company. Uh, he's, uh, it can be hard, but it's, it's good company. Anyway, I'll move, I should move on. Uh, Liam Molyneux, what's my favourite Yes album? Uh, difficult. I've always, when I've been asked that, I've always said Yes songs because it takes in my favourite, uh, the Yes songs triple live set, which is a brilliant live set. And, uh, um, because it takes in like my three favourite albums, which is Close to the Edge, Fragile, and the Yes album. And um, we story with that. I remember being on a Latin trip. This is true. Takes a swig of the other girl. Cheers, Prost. Prost. When I was at school, when I was, I think I was about 14, 15 year old, maybe, or maybe 15. And we went on this this Latin trip and we drove from Dalkeith in a bus on a very, very hot day, right? And we drove down to uh, Hexham, right? Which is down on the, 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 the Scottish-English border, right? And it's where Hadrian's Wall is, right? And uh, it was really, really hot. And um, really hot on a bus, loaded kind of teenagers. And I remember I had, I had the cassette of the Fragile album, and it's, it's one of the things that always comes into my mind, right? You would have listened, there's a little kind of nod in my mind, <laughs> you're fragile. 
And I had the cassette on this little Philips mono cassette player, right? And we were all up the back of the bus, like, listening to it on the, the back seat, going, round about, you know, and there was somebody who was sick about five rows down the bus, right? And the bus, there was no air conditioning. This is, this is Scotland. We don't have air conditioning here for all you American people, right? We don't have air conditioning here. We just have the open air, right? But we're on a bus with no air conditioning. And somebody threw up on the bus, right? And it was a big barf, right? And... <laughs> And I remember, and on the road to Hexham, there's all these these big rolling hills. Like you, know, you go up and then you go down. Now you go up and then you go down. And while this was happening on the bus, right, there was this pool of vomit. <laughs> and it wasn't quite water. It was kind of like a, a semi-liquid kind of thing. It was more like an alien, right, than anything else, right. And it made this noise right, as it went up and down the bus, right? And we were sitting there, and everybody put their feet up on the seats, right? And all you have was... And as we went up down the hill, this pull of them went up the bus and down the bus, and underneath the seats. Oh, it was horrific. And every time I hear Fragile, I have this little, little image of this Latin trip down Adrian's wall from Dalkeith High about you know, the, the rolling pull of it. I shall move on. It's seven o'clock. And now the Jews. Oh yeah, somebody asked me about the, the Nostal Priory, the, the 1984 one. And uh, that was where, it was, Phil Linnett was playing uh, his, one of his solo bands. I'm trying to remember what it was called. I'm sure it'll, it'll come up in the feed anytime. And Phil and I had got to know each other and we became like, when we saw each other, we were good friends, right? And we had similar passions in life at the time. That's all I'm going to say, right? We were both party guys, right? And uh, I remember like, within the ranks of, of certain musicians, uh, <coughs> Nostril Priory became known as Nostril Priority. <laughs> and every time somebody says that, I always say, it's the Nostril Priority gig. And there was a lot of people really off the faces. And I think there was something about it, it was, it was cancelled or, or it was moved or something like that. But I remember being with, uh, with Phil and going to Phil's... Phil was... Uh, we were both um, mutual fans of each other's lyrics. He was, a, he was really a, a big lyricist and he, he wrote some great lyrics. I've, I've, I've actually got... He actually gave me a, a, his poetry book way back then. And... Uh, and I remember it was, uh, I was talking with Phil before, uh, he was, we were headlining, he was kind of supporting us, and, or lower on the building, I should say, rather than supporting, right? Grand Slam, right? That was the name of the band. And um, it was, uh, I was in the caravan and we were, we were having a couple of beers and stuff, you know, in the, in the caravan before he went on. And I was saying, oh, I've got this gag, blah, blah, blah. And I can't remember what it was, and it was, uh, and Phil went on stage and used my gag, right? And I went, and he came off and I went, oh, thanks for that. You know, and he said, never tell you know, anybody about that. That's where he goes, you know, he says, you know, he says, don't, never let stuff like that go. And I, I learned something from him. But he was a great frontman. I loved him to death. He was, I spent, I had a couple of great nights with Phil in it. He was, uh, he was, he was a great character. And uh, yeah, and again, sad loss. I remember I was on, 
I was down in uh, Bath with my then wife and we were looking for houses in Bath and it came over the radio that he died and I was absolutely gutted and uh, it was a very emotional moment but anyway. Uh, Stephen Langston, sorry Fish, this is my fourth question. Greedy bastard. Uh, what made you move to Aylesbury? Marillion. I moved down there to join the band, that's where they were, that's where I moved there. Simon Farquhar, that's ruined your dinner. Yes, okay. And Simon, thank you very much for the book. I got the book, it arrived yesterday, and my wife is currently reading it at the moment as I'm too immersed in the Phil Collins autobiography. But I am going to read your book. Thank you. Uh, what vape juice am I smoking? I've got blueberry, blueberry 12. Actually, it's a mix at the moment because I've... I've I tend to go for blueberries. Blueberries or American tobacco. Uh, five past seven. Um, any memories of playing Dunstable Town? Tony N. Doug. Tony N. Doug? Tony N. Doug. I grew up in Dunstable. Great memories. Civic Centre, Queensway Hall. And you guys played the Peach Chief Pub. Yeah, Dunstable was one of those... Um, when we were gigging in, in AE1, my kind of, because I was kind of booking the band and kind of uh, doing the gigs and going in the back of the Sounds music magazine, the weekly magazine, getting the numbers. And We Chief and Dunstable was, was one of them. And there was, uh, but the whole idea back then was to kind of be able to, we were trying to build up <coughs> a kind of fan base or build up supporters of the band. So we used to play Dunstable, Luton, Berkhamsted, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, roundabout, and just keep on going round and round and then moving out. And every now and again, we do a foray up to Birmingham when eventually the marquee came along and it was uh, and that became the centre of the world for us. But back in those days, Dunstable was uh, was a really heatable thing. And I remember uh, it was um, Queensway Hall. It was, um, it, was a, it was a pretty cool place. Was uh, I've told him it was Queensway Hall. Was that was where we supported Linda's Farm? I think so. But was it was either Queensway Hall or St Albans? It was a big round venue, and it was like it was a, a sound engineer's nightmare. It was actually round, and if you were in the audience listening to music, you had to go and try and stand in the middle because if you stood out at the sides, the sound was absolutely atrocious. Right, but I remember supporting Linda's Farm at one of those gigs where we had a bunch of supports back then, and I've still got. I've got all the support gigs. I've got posters from Friars Aylesbury of all the support gigs that we did at, at Friars Aylesbury. And uh, it's um, one of my, one of the things that I'm, I'm really proud to own. It's, uh, it really takes me back. John Martin, John Cooper Clark, Spirit as well. And uh, really cool. Uh, uh, yeah, band was Grand Slam. Yep, got it, I got it as well. See, I'm not quite like, Gary Lundis. Yeah, Lizzie were a great band. And the other thing was that with Phil Linnett was when we were actually recording the, the Clutch and Straws album in a studio whose name I cannot remember. It was an awful studio, I hated it. And uh, it was down near uh, White City and you had to come down and come off the, the Shepherds Bush Roundabout. And Phil was uh, was around and he was they were working in the studio at the time. And uh, I used to, we used to play a lot of table tennis in there. Table tennis was the thing which leads on another thing. Table tennis with Genesis. That's another story. Uh, uh, 
Refresh page. Refresh page. Mickey Barker on drums. Mickey Barker. Yeah, Mickey Barker. He's a bell. Um, just waiting on the feed coming up so I can get another question in from the live feed. And say hello to all you lovely people in the world. But, uh, but yeah, the, the skies um, go down. Oh, by the way, that is, uh, you can just see in the background, uh, that's the water feature. That's the next thing on uh, Funny Farm Kitchen Garden. I've got to, um, I've done a little film on how to, how to build a water feature. It's like Blue Peel. And here's one of them before. Blue Peel. Yeah, so uh, I had a, had a great one today. One of the things I had to do uh, early this, well, this morning, first thing I got up, was like, I went out last night and I was kind of putting the cloche covers over and, and just doing a bit of watering in the garden just before, it was about half nine at night. And I went up to the, near the log pile and we've got these, this little, uh, uh, it's a little shed that goes around. You can see it there, right? Just where the flagpole is. And that's where we put the, that's where we put the mailbags. And I was out there, that's where the kindling stack is. And uh, I went out there and there was a wasp came out and being at that time of the night, I knew it was a guard wasp, you know, and it was, uh, and it was kind of, it was going around me and I was like, I'm going, there's a nest out here. And over the past week, we've been noticing that the wasps have been coming down and, and sitting on the furniture and they're just, the little mandibles are just chewing away, taking the, the, the wood off to go and build the nest. I'm going, there's a nest getting built somewhere and I didn't know where it was. Last night I found out where it was. And it was in the area where we put the mailbags and it was basically, we've got a, a, a sheet in there, it's got a barcode on it. So when the postie comes to pick up the, the, the bags or whatever, they always, they, they scan it so it shows that they've, they've visited the place and take the bags away. And it was there, one foot away, inside the eave or the, 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 post, the postal kind of area, the wee post box thing post shelf right and it was sitting up there and i went oh no and i'm going like you know the, the post is never going to come round again so i had to phone up the wasp guy 60 quid it cost today oh i've got to still pay him <clears throat> uh it's uh it was 60 quid to get the wasps done and he, he, he walked up brazen and i'm saying your wasp i don't know what you're like me and wasps i just go Pff, no right and it was underneath the eve and i went i kind of couldn't get it this way normally I leave wasps alone, right? Because they're actually friendly. I mean, to a gardener, they can be really friendly. They kill aphids, they kill a lot of um, uh, black fly and stuff. And I learned a long time ago about kind of that balance in nature where I killed it, I got rid of a wasp nest and I realized that the wasp nest was there because it was next to the, the pond through in the back garden and it was next to a, a, a bunch of uh, plants. And it was, they were covered in pollen beetle. And the wasps had set up the nest because they had the food and they had the water. And as soon as I got rid of the wasp nest, the pollen beetle decimated the, the front of the house. So I tend to leave wasps alone. I can put up with them, you know, they, I don't get the fear. But when they're in the mail room, I'm going, if the postie gets stung and refuses to pick it up and they can't scan it in case they get stung. So anyway, I had the wasp killer man here today. And he put his head in and he's like, and he's spraying about, no mask on, nothing. Obviously we were socially distanced, right? I'm not only socially distanced, I'm socially distanced from the wasps, right? 
because I'm going, this nutter is going in there and so sticking his head in the box, going like, oh, hi, there's a wash nest up there, son. Hi, son. Hi, it's up there, right? And then he goes, sprays it. No mask on or anything, sprays it on. He goes, he goes, all right, that's it. Oh, wait a minute, there's another one. Two wash nests out of this entire place, right? You know, the most awkward place to have wash nests and they, they decide to take up camp there, but they are gone. But I do have to pay them after I've done this. It's quarter past seven, so I'm going to kind of, I'm going to move things inside, right? So what I'll do is I'll take the camera in, right? I'll take this, this camera that you're getting the feed off. I'll take that in and then I'll set up the song and I'll park the rest of the stuff so you can listen to the song. What I'm going to play you is uh, Garden of Remembrance. And this was a song I wrote with uh, John Mitchell. And John did a, a great job playing piano, working on Great. I wish we'd actually worked a bit more, you know, with, 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 you know, on, on on stuff. I mean, as if we had any more. I mean, we've already got eighty-six minutes of an album. But John came up, and and we were we were stuck with this 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 song, Garden of Remembrance, and um, it was originally all the, the lyric was to be about Holland, and it was originally called Market Garden. That was the original working title for the piece. But I realised after writing Rosa, the lyric for Rosa Damascus, I was in a position where I was gonna be kind of copying some of it. There was a lot, in Rosa Damascus, there's a lot of references to war and stuff, and I didn't want to go back down that road again. But the song, the basic, basis of the song was, was basically about, uh, it was about dementia. And it was about a couple and uh, were one, the, the, basically the, 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 the husband, suffering from dementia and the wife and them both being together and stuff like that and it be, became a really poignant song and it, it moves in an area where you you can read kind of what you want within it it can be about a number of different things but my approach and the thrust of that lyric is kind of um, about dementia so uh, i'm gonna move in moving into the house now I have to put on the lights. So we set the camera up. I think that's settled. And originally this was going to be, uh, where's my heat? Uh, heat. That's the name of my CD book. The heat. And, um, Originally, this party's over was kind of nominated for uh, being the second release, the second kind of single release off the album. And uh, we got this together. And Callum Malcolm just blew fairy dust all over it. And it's really simple. There's, it's one of the songs where we didn't use strings on uh, because we felt if we used strings, we would start wandering down a path that was a wee bit too familiar. So all is basically electronic keyboards that are doing the back at work and the rest all piano and vocal. Doris Brendel's doing backing vocals on this. And um we still got it off. It's still there. And um it's uh the video which has been done by David Lamb, uh, who's a friend of Mark Wilson. David has put together an absolutely stunning video, right? But um, be prepared. This is, as I said on the post today, it's very emotionally charged. So this is Garden of Remembrance. 
a voice He tries to recognize the source and place the need A face so familiar The smile soft and warm The memory of eating His mind wanders on Down rabbit holes A darkened maze A place to hide and be alone Where thoughts land like snowflakes In the palm of his hand Swift melting moments His tears a surprise He tries to remember just what made him cry With the beautiful stranger Who is holding his hand He's lost between the here and now Somewhere that he can't be found She's still here A lover ghost of memory She'll wait for an eternity
Now forever apart With love so embracing Held in their hearts But nothing between them No memory shared No recognition In a soft pale green eyes He's lost between the Somewhere that he can be found She's still here A love that goes to memory She'll wait for eternity He's still here He's lost between the here and now Somewhere that he can be found She's still here A love that goes to memory It's, um, yeah, it's, it's Simona's favourite as well of the album. Uh, the video was absolutely, the David Lamb video was absolutely stunning. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, yeah, so. Yeah. Janice thought my eyes are leaking a little bit here, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of song in the moment as well. <clears throat> I think if the album's called Velchmelts, this song's kind of like the zeitgeist. It just, uh, I don't know, it's hitting a chord at the moment with everything that's going on out there, but, you know, yeah. So, without further ado, Mrs. Dick, what's for dinner tonight, Mrs. Dick? Liam's making our favourite vegetarian chilli. Liam's making our favourite vegetarian chilli. And I'm making naan bread. And you're making naan bread, so... So we're 20 minutes off, so we're good. Are we okay with the timing, Liam? What? Uh, is the timing okay for the curry? We'll be okay in 20 minutes? Don't be a spoiler, <laughs> no, no, I'm just asking. It's better. I was asking. It's because just I've got to finish this up, so I don't want to, like, you know. Yeah, it's a while. We're okay. Vegetarian cookbooks. It's great. Spoiled brat. So, <laughs> oh. like, um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it is a cracking song. Uh, yeah. Please post these lyrics, Brian Bergland. Yeah, I will do. It's a. Uh, it could be really, it's a, it's a very special, I don't think anybody's ever kind of, um, I don't think anybody's read a song about that subject matter before, 
but it's it's part of the Welshman's thing. It's so when you know, I told you it was a it was a case of Welshman's I did not want to deal with corporates and big business and everything else. It's uh, and I wanted to take it down to people and about people dealing with kind of problems in their own lives now and just doing that. All the lyrics about characters, their observational lyrics, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I pull a lot of stuff from my own personal experiences. I mean, some of that was one of the questions, which I can't, I, I can't find the moment, but it was like, you know, what inspires, how does it start? I mean, it was just, you know, I wanted to write a song about this. And, uh, and like I said, working with John, it was like, um, it, was, it was good. I mean, the chorus, when I, mean, I was actually sitting here on the seat, and uh, I was just sitting on my own and I came up with that <coughs> melody for the, the chorus and it was just, I went, wow, that's it, bang. And I went through and said, you know, this, we got it. Anyway, move on. But it's, it's there's, there's nothing. I mean, as, you know, the people that have heard the stuff so far, you know, as you hear it through the, the Kef speakers, I mean, my Kefs, or the Kefs, I mean, you hear it down the phone, here in the Kefs, it's just stunning. It's, uh, um, uh, hey Fish, how about some Tijuana Prass and the 8-track is back in for tomorrow's cast? That's a good thing. Right. I could. I could. Maybe do, let's do that next week, because that would involve me getting up and doing tech and wandering to tech minefield. But I'll, next week, I'll play a bit of Herbal put Tijuana Brass on 8-track. That's a promise, okay? So like, if you've never seen an 8-track before, let you hear it. I'll try and get it so you can get the click as it moves through the programs and you'll really get to know what eight tracks really were about. Uh, Steve Jarvis, massive fan of the Dream Disciples, got they split up. The first album in Amber had something to do with you. Danny the band, stay in contact with you. Um, Steve, yeah, hi. Um, Dream Disciples. Uh, I can't remember where I came across the Dream Disciples. I think they approached me and sent some demos that I really liked. James Cassidy uh, produced them. And they were a really interesting band. They were kind of like quite gothy, quite missiony. And, uh, you know, they, they had a bit of power. They did a, there was a great, they did a great cover of one of the Eurythmics tracks. What was it? Um, uh, oh, I can't, it'll, it'll come at me. It'll come to me. But yeah, the Dream Disciples were great. We put a lot of effort in uh, recording the album in Amber. Uh, and I took them out on the road with me and it was a, it was a kind of awkward situation because um, I just didn't feel they were kind of pushing enough. I think they needed a manager and I was kind of semi looking after them at the time and we tried we tried to to get things going with them, but it just never happened and I just didn't feel the attitude within the band was right it was uh um I didn't feel that the commitment was was really there and there was a lot of kind of personal differences within the band the usual story and, and like so many bands that I put through what was the funny farm recording studios back then I mean, we actually used the Dream Disciples track on what was called the Outpatients album, which was kind of like a, a compilation album that I modelled on <clears throat> Tony Stratton Smith's original Charisma Records, where I took a bunch of bands, including Guaranteed Pure, 
who had Ray, uh, Ray Wilson, who became a Genesis singer, uh, he, he had a couple of tracks in it. And I thought maybe with the Dream Disciples and I had a couple of tracks in the album to try and get people to listen to it and, and introduce them. And it just, it didn't work. And uh, it was apparently, they fell by the wayside and I couldn't do anything with them. They made a second album, which wasn't that great. And, uh, and I don't know what happened to them. I've, I've got no idea. I lost contact with them probably, you know, way back in the, the mid the mid to late nineties. But it was uh yeah, it, it was just it was just one of the it was one of the things I learned about, you know. Um I was trying to to run with a Dick Brothers record company before I could really walk. And financially we were uh we were burdened at the time so it was kind of it was difficult and what I didn't need you know I was already hemorrhaging money from touring and what I didn't need was hemorrhaging money and you know on other bands but it was a mutual kind of agreement it was just it wasn't happening and like I said the, the band broke up and things changed but it's a by the by all part of the immense learning curve right uh uh Alison McKenzie, high fish, Friday's question. Have you ever suffered from stage fright? I've suffered from uh, stage fright on a number of occasions. Usually, you know, it's big gigs, festivals and things. I'm usually, I get very, uh, very nervous before big gigs. I remember when we played, uh, um, um, what was the... Dan, what was that gig, the Karlsruhe gig called? The Das Fest, right, in Karlsruhe. And that was a huge gig. And we were playing uh, Misplaced Childhood. Ah, it's Misplaced Childhood. That was it, just the album. And it was a huge crowd. And uh, I remember being really nervous before we went out. But the thing is, the nerves, when I walk from the side of the stage and I get to the microphone, right, and as soon as I, I'll touch a microphone and I hear it coming through a monitor, and as soon as it starts, the nerves go, right? And it becomes full focus, full bore, full pelt, just project, you know? And I don't think about the fear. You don't have the time to think about being nervous or being scared. Um, I've had it a number of kids doing, doing the Aryan shows, the Aryan shows in Tilburg, I was really nervous and I had a bit of stage fright before I went on because I was outside my comfort zone because, you know, this was like a theatrical musical production. This wasn't just playing with a band and walking out. When I did the Nelson Mandela gig, walking out just to do Kaylee, um, that was at Wembley Stadium. That was, uh, that was a lot of nerves. Um, uh, but like I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the, I think it's just the overthinking before you go on. But as soon as you hit the microphone, you've got to do it. You know, there's there's no escape. There's no, you, you can't just go, you know, feign a heart attack and fall over. You've, you've just got to do it. To, and you just got to keep in your head that you people have come to see you play. You know, you didn't come to see them. They came to see you, right? And you've just got to keep that. And, and I've always said, you know, it's, it's like dealing with tigers. You know, I mean, if you show fear right, at any point, you know, you will be taken apart. And you've just got to go out and grow a big pair and, and, and deal with it. But I mean, 
there's stage fright regarding the event, and there's also uh, the stage fright and the stage fear, which I've had when I was running through a lot of vocal problems in the 90s, before I knew that I had a cyst on my vocal cords. And I was going out and every night was like rolling dice and you never knew, some nights they'd be great and then you'd have two nights that were really awful and two nights that were average. And you never knew when you went out and started singing. Sometimes you could go out and the first two songs would be fine. And then it would just, the voice would just go. And that I hated, right? That was, as a singer, when, you, when your voice is gone, you know, when you're walking on with, with, with vocal problems, that is horrible. That's really, really horrible. And especially when you stand at the front of stage and you see people wince, you know, when you, you go for a note, you miss it and people go, ooh, that gets you, you know? And there's times, there was times especially on the Rain Gods tour, uh, on the Rain Gods tour especially, there was some some pretty bad moments in there where it, it, it was, you know, it was pretty bad. But I mean, you just got to ride it. I mean, you know, you just heard my voice on, on uh, Gardner Remembrance, I think, you know, I mean, I've seen it myself. I think it sounds great because I think my voice has found a natural level now. I think back in, as I've I said before in previous kind of podcasts that, you know, back in the day of, of script and Fugazi and even Misplaced, you know, I was singing unnaturally high. If I'd seen a voice coach, they would have said, don't sing like that because you are going to do damage in the long term. And, um, you know, you know, going through the operation, coming through the the... the, the the operations in 2008 and, uh, and uh, 2009, that was a pretty bleak time. You know, I remember being at, uh, in fact, that, there's another question. It was, uh, where was it? It was relevant to this. Um, blah, 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 blah. Rick. Barnfather, did you ever at any point in your career think, fuck it, it's not worth it? What's been the real low? Um, I think when I had the voice problems. Uh, we played, I think it was Bury or Derby or somewhere like that, Bury. And we played, I remember walking off the stage and I walked out, I walked straight out of the gig. I didn't even go to the dressing room, I walked straight out of the gig. And I just, and it was the last gig and I wanted to go home. And I, I was hating touring at that point because I wasn't enjoying it because I didn't know where my voice was. And that was where I think on, 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 on those tours, you know, when it's been like that, I have kind of thought about it. But I mean, I think Rain Gods was, was a bad one, you know, because of uh, the lurgy and things. And, but a lot had to do with stress and stuff. I mean, again, but I mean, yeah, that it's really when when the voice is gone, I mean, I've never kind of thought, fuck it, when it's been, you know, you know, a, a financial kind of concern or anything like that, you know, because you've always got the saving grace of being on the stage for two hours. And, you know, you can be, you know, as you can see on the Sunsets and Empire documentary that your Bushka did, you know, that moment when you're sitting back in Colm and you're sitting there going, we're 70 grand in debt, well, do we call the tour or not? And Yat and I are sitting there going, what do we do? But you walk on the stage and then you've got an audience and then you get that lift and you get that adrenaline and uh, you have that two hours of catharsis and just happening and you forget about it. But when you're going up and that two hours on stage, when that's got a plague attached to it, you know, th that does your head in. You know, that really, I, and I hate that. 
I really hate when things are, are, are going wrong on voice. Really, I, not good, not good. So, Dream Disciples cover with Sweet Dreams. That's it. Sweet Dreams and me this. Great cover, great cover. Um, my wife brought me through. This is alcohol-free Prosecco. Uh -huh. Just in case you're wondering when I was switching. It's one of our little tipples of choice. Um, very sweet, but it's all right. It's kind of close to mine. So still alcohol-free. Uh, Jason Coles, do you keep in contact with Stephen Wilson? It's like a lot of guys, you know, we're in the business that I know. We, we don't kind of regularly, there's very few people that I keep in regular contact with. Stephen Wilson got in contact after the the Velchmerz track was put out and he, he, he wrote a really nice email saying that he, how much he liked the track and stuff, and which I thought was was really nice of him. But I mean, uh, when, it's, it's the same with, the problem with the music business and the problem thing is, is that you don't see a lot of people all the time, you know, I mean, I live in outside Arlington, you know, I'm not in that London sect where, you know, you're continually bumping into other musicians and other bands. I live in the country in East Lothian and, you know, it's sometimes you get past, you know, people coming into Edinburgh. In fact, one of the last times I saw Stephen was when he was, he was playing in Edinburgh at the Queen's Hall and I went in and, and I had drinks were him and, and Nick Beggs after the after the gig and it's great and when you meet up it's the same with Majeur we were we, we were doing a festival down in outside Stuttgart uh, a couple of years back and I met Midge I hadn't seen Midge for years and then you meet up and you have this wonderful kind of it was lucky it wasn't backstage it was actually in the hotel where they were staying and we had a great you know hour together and you know talking away and then I've not, I've not seen Mitch since, you know, I don't kind of phone him up. I'm, I'm just not like that. And it's, it's, as I said, I mean, I've got a lot of people who are really good friends, but I just don't see them for years. Spike Edney and I, I mean, great, Spike and I are great friends, but I don't phone up Spike on a regular basis. Sometimes I'll get, I'll go, I need to talk to Spike, but I don't really stay in contact. And, um, but when we do meet, it's very intense and, you know, it's, uh, it's cool. I, I'm okay like that. But I've never been kind of, I've never really been kind of a hanger out or, or, you know, you know, when I was down in London in, in the early days, I used to get a lot of invites to, invites to, you know, film premieres and, and parties and launch parties and da da da. And to be honest, it's like a lot of them I used to find really boring. And, you know, it's great to meet out with some people, but, you know, I, I just find I'd rather be here. You know, I'd, I'd rather be in the garden than going out. I mean, and it takes a lot to get me to go to a gig. I mean, I went in to see, you know, Stephen Wilson because it's like, you know, it was to see Stephen and Nick, you know. And, you know, I was really interested in hearing what he did and I really enjoyed the gig. I mean, I really enjoyed his gig. Uh, Berend Bodshu, did you ever meet Peter Gabriel? Yeah, I met him a couple of times. Very shy man. It's like... Um, never spent long in his company, but it's, but yeah, he's an interesting dude. Oh, oh. Uh. 
Tussen de Martina, Holle, Daniel. Where are we now? Where are we now? Any memories of playing on the same bill as Magnum? Yeah, I used to really like Magnum. I, I, the um, uh, Storytellers Night was uh, was a great album. I used to love that, and I remember it was um, Soldiers on the Line. What do you do? Soldiers on the Line. Can't remember, but yeah, I used to I used to like Magnum, and and they were they were happening, you know. You know, way before Marillion, they had, they had two or three, four albums out before Marillion came on, on the scene and started working. And I used to quite like what they did. And then, you know, we worked a couple of times. The, our big thing with Magnum was that Yatta, who was, who's like one of my best mates, right, you know, who loved to death, right? And Ma Yatta used to work for Magnum and uh, he had a bit of a bad experience with Magnum. I think that the, the Yatta, the, the Yatta management, the Magnum management got rid of Yatta and it was kind of, that kind of stuck in his craw a little bit. And, um, but Bob and the boys, it's like, we met up, he's just, bro, he's like, you know, really awkward to do, right? Nice people, right? And really down to earth guys. And, but I've not, I've not seen them for years and years and years, right? Uh, Tanya Wyman, Nick Beggs, yeah, there's a nutter. I knew Nick. I mean, I first met Nick when he was in Kajagoogoo, right? And I had no idea at that time that he was such a brilliant bassist, a well, bass player, right? And I was like, and I remember when we used to go to Manchester Square when we were signed to EMI, it was like all the Kajagoogoo fans, right? You know, Kajagoogoo, Lamal and stuff, who's a really nice bloke. I used to love Lamal, great guy. They were really nice people. I just, you know, the songs, some of the great pop songs, some of them, you know, but it was, uh, but it was, <laughs> Glad I wasn't in a pop band like that. No, I couldn't handle it. Oh. Neil Montgomery, are there any lyrics you've not been 100% happy with in any of your songs? Something that were deliberately put in. Um, yeah, that Marcus Square Heroes Battle Priest thing, I, I didn't realise until later that it was the market square use version did have the battle piece thing the problem was everybody was going for radio we we needed radio in 1982 when market square came out right and they just said well basically you know if you put antichrist then then you can basically kiss radio one as it was as was the big player at the time you can kiss radio one goodbye because they just won't play it and we had to basically um uh we had to, you know, it was, it was, there was no point in stampy feeting about it. It was like, you know, well, okay, we're a band, we've just signed to EMI, so do we just, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot right away, or do I just swallow it and put Battle Priest in to get Radio 1? But it's like, at the same time, every time we were playing it live and every other version at that time was basically, I am your Antichrist. So, uh, so I had to kind of swallow it a little bit, but then take it. The other re time that I, I got really up, upset about, right, was, um, and again, I was in a position where it was, um, I, I had no real choice. And I, and that was in the perception of Johnny Punter. Um, on perception of Johnny Punter, on the release that came out in America, on Viceroy Records, who were going through, uh, was it, what was it, Warriors? 
I think, or Universal, anyway, one of the big labels. And at the time, there had been a whole load of stuff going down because uh, uh, a lot of the rap artists, or a lot of the hardcore rap artists, um, being done for violent language, abusive language, etc., etc., and there was a lot of scrutiny on the label at the time. And there was me coming out with, you know, uh, just another nigger, nigger, a spooky piece of white trash. That entire first section of that song was kind of very much a kind of like a mini homage to Lenny Bruce, who was a big Canadian, uh, comedian, well, comedian, stroke activist, you could say. He was a real forefront rider uh, back in the, the, the early, uh, in the 60s. And, um, and he had a, a whole thing where he walked on stage and just said, you know, are there any cakes in the audience, any niggas, any, like, any whops and stuff like that. And he was done for bad language. He had police turning up and he was arrested, et cetera, et cetera. And it was because perception of Johnny Punter, because of what it was about, it was inspired by Bosnia. It was about this kind of hatred and, and everything that was going on. And that opened up with that section, you know, just another naked or spooky piece of white trash, just another Jew boy speak, make get, ragged motherfucker living on the planet, right? And it was all terms of abuse for everybody, right? And it was like, it was just words. And that was Lenny Bruce's thing. They're just words, you know? And, um, and I was told by Viceroy that there was a, uh, the album wasn't going to be released because I basically used the word nigger in, in, in the lyric. And I said, well, you know, it's not meant to be abusive. It's not meant to be, um, I'm not using it as, as an abusive message. And the, the label we were going through, um, they went around the entire record company and they, they, they showed the lyrics to... to uh, a lot of black people in the, the record company are, are you offended by this? And it was not meant to be offensive, right? And, and, and most of the people said, no, we're not offended. They saw what it was about, and they said, no, we're not offended. And, and uh, there was a push of Viceroy, and they said, well, you're gonna have to redo the lyric, and I had to rewrite it. And I can't even remember. It's, it's on the, the Sunsets and Empire remaster. And I think that the actual version of the, the actual, the, the white cottony pure version is on the, the, the Sunset's remaster. I never liked it. And it was like, I mean, the whole thing was, it was supposed to be confrontational, but it wasn't abusive and it wasn't meant to be offensive, right? It was just, it was the scope of the lyric and that was what it was about. But that was the only time between that and Market Square were the only times, but at that point in America, we had a tour going out and it was either we're gonna get distribution on this record and it was Sunset's and Empire. And I'd put a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of work into making Sunsets and Empire happen and I needed it to happen and I needed that American tour. And at the end of the day, Viceroy stiffed us and I never saw any money off Viceroy anyway. It was like, it ended up being, you know, a complete disaster over there. But those were the two times, that EMI Market Square Heroes thing and the perception of Johnny Punter of Sunsets and Empire. And it was really interesting since Last week, somebody actually came up and, oh no, it wasn't, it was, it was, somebody saw a review of the Aberdeen Lemon Tree gig and they'd never even heard of Perception of Johnny Punter or the Sunsets and Empire album. And they heard it and he went, wow. And that's a good thing. And that's the beauty of everything kind of happening. We're now at 10 to 9. This is the longest one. So, Michael Mitchell Moore, are you coming across the pond in the future? What pond? Uh... Uh, I'll leave it at that.
because it's like Liam's been, we've got our, our curry going, and I've got my, the end of my airdinger. And so, it's another week. I really look forward to these, and it's kind of, they're, they're making, the, I, I don't know about you, but they make my week kind of like, it sort of accelerates into this, and, um, and I like it. Um, like I said, I mean, some of the earlier pointers when, you know, I try and avoid anything that's going to be too contentious. I'd rather do the stories because it's a one-way flow and I don't want to be dictating, you know, my political views or whatever here because it's not the place for it. You know, like, as I said, we're in a kind of strange situation. And, you know, I watch the news at night and, it's, you know, I just feel like I'm living on a different planet here, you know said before, we're, we're really lucky we have got a, a beautiful garden and the house and we've got the space and, you know, I find it strange when, you know, you do drive down and I've got my shamag on and I've got my mask on, get my hands all clean and getting the disinfectant on and being aware of the Tesco bags and anybody delivers stuff to the door and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's strange. But we're doing okay. My mum's doing good. She's still hammering jigsaws together with a mallet. Liam's coping with it really, really well. I was really pleased. My, my daughter Tara and her boyfriend got a flat today across in Fife, which was great news. And I'm really glad they've got a place together. You know, Simone and I are doing well. Um, you know, we're dealing with it. You know, I have my bad days the same as kind of you all probably do. It's, um, there was a couple of days last week where it was cloudy outside, it wasn't inviting, and you just feel it kind of, it just overwhelms. And you've just got to shake it off and find something to do, you know, go through and sort out the pieces of my mum's jigsaw or go out of the greenhouse and do something, plant something, weed something, read something positive and, and things. Uh, it's, um, we're okay. We're, you know, healthy. I'm losing a bit of weight. Uh, like I said, I'm just, I'm really glad that I'm not waking up my hangovers. And, you know, I'm glad we're kind of keeping fresh and I'm glad that the weather's holding up. It's supposed to be, I might have to get the fleeces out tonight because it might be going down into Frostville. But we're all right. Hope you guys are okay. Um, you know, I know it's going to be tough for some people out there, you know, being on their own. I know what it's like with, with my daughter. I know Simona really misses her two daughters. One's in Spain and one's in Germany and her mum and dad are in Karlsruhe. And it's, you know, being distant from families and loved ones is kind of, is, you know, that's a tough one. But... We just got to ride through it. It's, it's, it's going to move. There's no point in stamping your feet. There's no point in, you know, letting it really get in your head. If you let it get in your head, it just it just rots in there and it just it turns your day. And you just got to deal with it as we deal with it. As I said, I look forward to Fishing Friday. I hope you do. I've enjoyed it tonight and I hope you have. And uh, until next week, um, all you people out there, all you lovely little people, Take care, stay alive, stay healthy, keep your distance, keep clean, and just watch what you're doing, okay? Bye-bye.